Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Noach. We are at the third triennial reading. We've begun Torah again together. So we are now in the last third of every Parsha. We're in the last third, um, which puts us at chapter 11, verse 1 this morning. But before we start reading, I wanted to address a few issues. It seems this is the theme for this year. Um, Where's Paula? She's not here. Um, I wanted to address uh, a couple of things from last week. So, David, I did read your email. Um, I just mentioned a word I was hoping to hear from. And I prepared a response. I just haven't had. I didn't have time to like type it up, but I prepared uh, to discuss it this morning. Um, So, a couple things. So, one question David had, uh, and that we talked about last week, was what is so. What happens, right? You have humanity. Humanity gets created with free will. Humanity makes the choice to eat of the free of the... To eat of the free. free Humanity makes the choice to eat of the tree of the knowledge between good and evil. Tov virah. So the question then is, how does it get so raw... Right? That you need a flood, right? God decides God needs a flood in order to deal with this situation. That it has just gotten so raw, it's gotten so bad that only destruction and starting over, right? Remember, we, God does this, if you'll recall, last week out of sadness, right? A heavy heart and, and regretting having created human beings because of what they're doing to each other. There's lots of rabbinic tradition about what they're doing to each other, um, as you can imagine. What are the, the rabbis are like, what exactly is so wrong? What does that mean? What are they doing? So there's lots written about that. Um, but it gets so bad that God, out of, out of great sadness, decides God has to hit the reset button by bringing the flood. And again, every, every single ancient Near Eastern people has a flood narrative. This is ours. So the question isn't, why is there a flood? The question is, what's the meaning of the flood in ancient Israelite tradition? Because you had to have the flood story because there's a flood story. Um, just like there's a creation narrative for every people, right? So, um, so then the question I think we got to was, so... Noah gets chosen and to survive and then then we got this Abraham guy so what what you know like how is that fair to humanity i remember that being one of the questions how is it fair that only the jewish people are given guidance right they're given the torah they they enter into this relationship so what about the rest of humanity so what i did not say last week is that in our parsha after the flood god makes a covenant with all of creation God makes a covenant with every living thing, with the earth, with, and it's called the rainbow covenant. God makes that covenant with all human beings. Those are what our tradition calls the seven Noahide laws. So there are seven laws that all of humanity are supposed to follow. So it isn't like our tradition says humanity got no guidance, only the Jewish people did. We, we got another specific set of a ton of do's and tones, right? Um, 613 to be exact. Uh, just a few. Um, but 
all of humanity was given the seven Noahide laws. So Judaism believes that God is in relationship to all of humanity. The rainbow covenant is still in place. So the covenant between God and all living things was never abrogated. And so I think sometimes we forget that when we talk about the covenant, we're talking about the covenant at Sinai between God and the Jewish people. But there was a previous covenant that is still in place with all of humanity. We do not believe we have in any way an exclusive relationship with the divine. That is not a Jewish belief. Everybody is related to the divine and everybody has a covenant with the divine according to our tradition. Just, you know, kind of the basics. Um, And all of creation uh, as well, right? So there's not a split between the material world and the divine. The The divine infuses the material world, works throughout the material world and through every living being and every living human who is in the image of God, right? And that was the important thing we talked about last night. Last night, I'm so sorry. Grief, grief mm-hmm. after surgery. Um, mm-hmm. Those two together are resulting in some very interesting glitches in the in the right. m- my mental capacity. So um, we talked about last week that that um, Noah. The important thing was that Noah was very clearly by that genealogy we studied directly related to Adam. So that all of humanity is clear that all of humanity descends from the same ancestry. And there's a covenant with all living things. Then we get the Jewish people that has its own. We don't have an exclusive relationship with God. God has an exclusive relationship to us, meaning you don't get to worship in any other way other than the way I tell you with this specific covenant for you, the Jewish people. So that's the chosenness. Right. God chooses the Jewish people to be in relationship to God in this particular way. That doesn't mean anybody else is less involved with the divine. I have a question. If every, um, everyone has a blood story, mm-hmm. and I hope I'm perceiving this right, then does everyone believe that there's this rainbow covenant, that, that no. everyone then has a covenant with, with God? No. Okay, we're just the that, that was the point, like the whole flood narrative leads to that point for early Israel. Okay. That's early Israel's agenda. Okay. A, a covenant with the divine. That is not the point of other stories. Okay. In other stories, the survivor of the flood is a semi-divine being. Oh. So it is a huge deal for, in our story, which we usually overlook because you wouldn't know that, um, is that Noah is human. Human. And we're told that he dies. It's important that we're told that he dies so that there should be no confusion early on in telling the story. No confusion that Noah then becomes, you know, some kind of, yeah, some kind of divine being. Can you give us an idea of what the seven Noah? I knew this was coming. (laughs) (laughs) How about you tell me what they are? What do you think? I'm guessing you should treat other people the way you want to be treated. So what would that mean? What would that look like? What would you not do? Kill someone. <laughs> yeah. Murder. No, no murder. Right. So what did you say? Stealing. Stealing. So how, it sounds like we're doing the seven commandments instead of the ten. So essentially it's, yes, it's the seven commandments for humanity. Yes. Don't relate to just celebrating the Sabbath. And Correct. Correct. It's, there's no specifics like that. It's general, okay. appropriate, moral behavior for human beings. Um, then, if there was anything different in there from 
what we get otherwise. No, we, you know, it, it's kind of covered again. <laughs> like yeah. They're covered again and again yes, in the We have to have it repeated to, to us all the time. Correct, right? We have to hear it three different ways, right? Yeah. Usually as human beings to, to take it in. So the, the last thing I'll say about that conversation um, last week um, was that the other uh, part of that uh, was um, that God learns after the flood that God is going to have to compromise. God learns because we've eaten from the tree. God now realizes we we now can do tov and we can do ra, right? And because we're going to do ra a lot, (laughs) we get the Noahide laws as kind of a guide for all humanity. Um, But also the Jews get Torah. And Yitz Greenberg has a beautiful teaching. Um, it's probably even a book. But, but he talks about that Torah is God's compromise with humanity through the Jewish people. And the compromise is, in a perfect world, pre-flood, we didn't eat living things. Right. We, we ate plants, and we ate from trees, right? And you didn't kill things mm-hmm. and eat them. The first thing Noah does is offer a sacrifice. Right? Remember, they ate sacrifices. So, um, so the first thing he does is eat meat. So, so God kind of gets it that humanity is not going to be where humanity was before they could do Ra. Before they ate from that tree, they, they were just hanging around. They, they, there wasn't any Ra. There wasn't any bad or, right, or evil because there was no choice. Now that they know the difference between good and bad, they have a choice constantly in everything they do to do good or bad. So God realizes, okay, this is the humanity I'm going to have to deal with unless I hit the reset button all the way back to Eden and take away choice from them. But of course, this Torah is written by people who live in a world where human beings have free will. So there, of course, it can't be a reset back to Eden because that's not the world we live in. That's not the world Torah is describing. So, they, so if there's Tobin Rajitz, Greenberg says, so in a perfect world, there would be no killing of animals and eating them. But humanity doesn't live in a perfect world and humanity's not perfect anymore because they can choose to do bad, right? So you can eat some animals, not all animals. And if you're going to eat some animals, this is the way you eat them. And this is how they have to be shechted. And you can't eat roadkill. And you can't, like, you can't descend all the way down to being human vultures. Right. Oh. But, but I'm not going <laughs> to... <laughs> Was it something I said? Um, yes. You, you, know, you can't descend to being like you know picking at roadkill, but you but you also because you kind of are what you eat. But you but I'm not going to demand you be vegetarians because I get it; it's too hard for y'all. So I love that about Yitz's Greenberg's understanding of Torah as being God's compromise, moving us from what is towards what should be. Right? That we would work all the time if we could. We're going to get to a story about that. It's only 11 verses long. Don't worry. I, I know I'm watching the clock. Um, so we, we would work all the time to get more and more and more and more and more. So we're given Shabbat as a commandment, right? To move us from who we are and how the world is to more towards how it should be. So I'm going to say something I'm sure the rabbis have discussed. Because it makes sense. See, if God learns from mm-hmm. this, when you learn, it means that... God forbid. God forbid. didn't know something God before, forbid. and now you know it. God forbid. And I so said learn. God is perfect, I said learn. God change? I said learn because oh. that is the author's... Okay. I think that's the author's position. The author is not interested in God being perfect. 
That's not the author's interest. It is the Neoplatonic, Neo-Aristotelian philosophers who are interested in God being perfect based on the Greek, that God unchanged, the unmoved mover, thought, thinking itself, right? There can't be a change in God because that would imply God was not perfect. How could God learn? Because that means God doesn't know something and now God does. How could God speak? Because that means God wasn't speaking. Now God is speaking. Then God stops speaking. That's a change in God. That can't happen. You're saying for this author, God is evolving. I think God is in relationship, and relationship by definition means we impact one another. When you look at God feeling regretful, like I I have to believe the author thinks God is impacted by human behavior, by what happened. Much, much later, you have God remembering like that the Israelites were suffering in Egypt as if God had forgotten it which ostensibly in all knowing God couldn't forget right well God doesn't the word isn't remember but God right. takes in note English, right or takes note right. so. yes this is not a commandment that we should eat meat no no, no. exactly no but actually the ultimate and kosh root then if you're looking to go back to the more perfect time is not to eat meat. It's a strong argument from the vegetarians. And they use it. Yes, they do. They use it a lot. (laughs) Right. Ad nauseum. (laughs) I can't go to a rabbinic convention without getting into it with somebody (laughs) about this. I'm like, like, you know, high in my, you know, like, whatever. But I don't want to bring my baggage in here. Okay. Um, Yes. I love the idea that you presented that God is a learner. (laughs) Because... That models it for us. I think that's absolutely true. That that I hope we've come a really far away from the Greeks needing God to be perfect, right? Um, and I get their time, and I get their thinking. I totally get that. And then our our things had to line up with that. I get that. But I too much prefer that God learns because because it says to us, so should if you want to be. Imitatio Dei, then you need to be learning, and you need to be a lifelong learner. That's exactly right. Exactly. And the other thing I think it models is that God is deeply impacted by our behavior. That's the other thing I really love from these stories is that God feels in response to our behavior. Right, and you know, so Elie Wiesel, you know, was questioned. You know, where was God at Auschwitz? You know, one of those people throwing that in into his face, right? And 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 he said, "My God was in heaven weeping." Right, like that, you know, that's a that's a powerful image for, that, that that I hold on to. Right, not that I have God as a being. You know me enough to know that, but but I, that's kind of my answer too. Is I believe the divine weeps for what we do to one another. All right. Let us look at (laughs) chapter... So don't think I don't think about these things that (laughs) y'all bring up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Do you feel better about God now, David? That we got the Noahide laws, people got guidance, people were supported with... I say one thing which I said in the email. God cannot make perfection because there's no need for this if people are perfect. Correct. Right. right. So God would write, the thought was that there was a bias possibly towards the weak, not necessarily the bad, but the imperfect 
because God knew that to do this, this process of study, of trying to achieve better life, that in itself is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Started with good. There's no need for this. Well, remember Kushner said everything was perfect. Mm-hmm. Humanity was created and everything was perfect. Mm-hmm. Then God put this tree don't eat business <laughs> into the mix, yeah. right? Th- and that and then so he asks the question, why would God do that when everything was perfect until then? So it's, all it's all perfect. And so and he's, he's, his answer is cuz God wanted humans striving for goodness more than God wanted perfection. God was not interested in perfection or God would not have put the tree there and said don't eat it. Right. And, and what the tree did. Right. And it w- wouldn't have put that tree there with the knowledge of good and evil there. If God wanted perfection, God instead wanted the striving of human beings to be good and to choose to be good, yes. wanted human goodness, which you can't have without that tree and evil. God wanted human goodness more than God wanted perfection. And I think that is a beautiful teaching uh, about the moral, the lesson, right, of, of, of Eden. And the opposite of original sin. And the opposite of original sin. Rabbi, you could turn it around. In order to, um, to be a perfect God, you have to understand what imperfection is. <laughs> right. That's right. So, nice. So, how could, we, how, could, how could we have the Aristotelian perfect God if there's no imperfection? Right. But one of the perfections of God is that he knows what the imperfect is. (laughs) And that couldn't happen without human beings having the opportunity to do wrong. Right? If we hadn't have eaten from the tree, or if the tree hadn't have been put there, there would not have been no imperfection, presumably. Right? Lovely. And a lot of this uh, mimics and echoes the experience many of us go through with our children. Exactly. <laughs> to the people. Again with Carol over here. Say, don't, don't, don't cross the line. And then what's the first thing they do when you say don't do this? Hey, do it. Do it. He lived through it. <laughs> right? Like there's sometimes my daughter says something and I'm like, don't change your face. Don't change your face. <laughs> Keep your shoulders down. Don't change your face. Right? Because if I react, she's going to now have a react. You know, right? Just, just, oh, really? Okay. All right. All right. Chapter 11, verse 1. All the earth had the same language and the same words. As they wandered from the east, they came upon a valley on the land of Shinar and settled there. Then people said to, to one another, Come. Let us make bricks and fire them hard. So they had bricks to build with, and tar served them as mortar. Then they said, Come let us build a city with a tower that reaches the sky, so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over all the earth. Then yud heh came down to look at the city and tower the people had built. And yud heh said, Look, these are all one people with one language, and this is just the beginning of their doings. Now no scheme of theirs will be beyond their reach. Let us go down there and confuse their speech so that no one understands what the other is saying. So it came about that yud heh scattered them all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it, is, it was called Bavel, because there yud heh confused the speech of all the earth and from there yud heh scattered them over the face of the earth. Okay. Where's Bavel? What's Bavel refer to? Tower. New. No. It's a place. 
Babylonia. Babylonia. Oh, the lights come on, right? Um, in the ancient world, Babylonia is in Mesopotamia. All right. So this is a story about Mesopotamia. Where are our folks who write the story? What is their origin? Canaan. Our, we emerge out of Canaanite religion, Canaanite mythology, Canaanite pagan practice. This story is about Mesopotamian culture, Mesopotamian practice, Mesopotamian stuff. Okay. Does this reinforce the idea that the Garden of Eden was like at the like Baghdad is today in Iraq? Yes. Tigris Euphrates. Yeah, this whole yes. thing took place in Iraq. Yes, because that, that's before the war. At, at the Fertile Crescent, that's where all of this originates, right? Um, and actually, civilization in some ways, right, originates there. Okay, so so let's keep that in mind. We're talking about Mesopotamia, Those and the people telling the story are from Canaan. Of course, and and emerge out of that mentality. Okay, so. So, and it was that all of the world was one language and one set of words. Okay? Everyone spoke the same language. And it was in their uh, moving, going, from the east. And they found a valley on the land. Shin'ar. It's called Shin'ar. And they settled there. Right. Already the rabbis identify a problem. <laughs> because the ultimate question is, why do they get scattered? Like, wh- why do they get, right? Wh- what is this story coming to teach us, right? If the story is how did the elephant get its trunk, we need to know, is that... What's, what's the point of the story? <laughs> a trunk? The tail? The ears? Like what, what, what's the point? So for the rabbis, they have to ask why. What, there has to be an issue for there to be God intervening directly. It has to be a pretty big issue, right? For the CEO to come down and deal with it, it's got to be a pretty big problem. So it's not just a violation in the employee handbook. There's like there, there's something going on. Can you tell we've had a long HR week here? <laughs> so I have a question. Is it that God decided we should have? <laughs> you don't not get ahead of me, Jody. All right. So so let's stay with where we are. So rabbis identify here one problem. What might the problem be? They see a valley and they settle. Disunification is scattering. No, they're set, they settle together. They have one language. Everybody's together. They find a valley and they settle. <laughs> All right. What, what's wrong with that? Valley. Nope. We're talking about. Nope. So what? What's their ways? So they give what they give up is what the rabbis say they were charged with in Eden after they leave Eden. You shall fill the earth. Which they didn't. Yeah, no. They said, here's a really nice condo, but with a really nice view. Let's all stay here in this condominium complex. And like, so they, they abrogate the deal to fill and settle the earth because they like it here. 
so we're going to stay here. Scattering was the goal. So, so let, 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 don't go with Jody yet. All right. So you and Jody are skipping on down the road. All right. Vayamru ish el and a person would say to their neighbor, "Hava nil bina levenim, let us uh, build bricks, v'nisrefa l'srefa, and burn them hard." Right? They tend to stay. So, because they, what, what is a brick that's been burned hard? Explain it, Judith Ubik, the artist. <laughs> it's solid, it's cement almost. It's, it's going to stay there. It's, if you take mud brick and you put it in a kiln mm-hmm. and you burn it, it is now hard. Permanent, hard. permanent and hard. Um, this is, according to my uh, commentary, this is an educational aside <laughs> to the audience who does not know from brick. Yeah. Oh. What did they build with in Canaan? Mud brick was your cheap, regular source. Mud brick crumbles, right? What were big, strong buildings made out of? Stone. There is plentiful stone in Canaan. And if all y'all, anyone who's been to Jerusalem, <laughs> right? You've seen it, right? And the quarries and the marble and that, right? You know, so you've seen the quarries and you've seen the results of those. So there's plenty of stone in Canaan. There isn't stone in Mesopotamia. So in Mesopotamia, they take mud brick and put it in a kiln and make it stone-like. We stone like. tried to use Jerusalem stone here and it didn't work. Yeah, yeah right, right. Is there a relationship between this and the making of bricks in Egypt? You, write the Midrash. <laughs> write that Midrash. Um, so they, 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 they burn it and it's hard. So they, they say, let us do that. Um, because here's the note, right? Because it was to those folks that it was like stone. Meaning, the, the, the author has to explain, right, why they burned mud brick. Because it was like stone. Because what they are using, the listeners are using stone. That's what they know from, all right? And, and the... And the bitumen was served them as mortar. So they used bitumen. Bitumen was plentiful in Mesopotamia uh, and was what was used to stick it all together and made those hard things even stronger when the bitumen hardened. Like bituminous coal. It's the same material, I think. It's, it's, it can be made into mush and then will harden. Bituminous coal. Mm-hmm. You heard it here. <laughs> um, which you've been waiting don't think I don't know you've been waiting four years to drop that into a conversation Judith you think. Um, <laughs> so that material by the way is uh, in the right conditions flammable yes really Absolutely. <laughs> really, Carol? It is. Um, and so some people explain that in the Dead Sea Basin, there is a lot of bitumen. And if you have lightning, it can blow up the bitumen. And this is the explanation in many sources for what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh. Oh, 
the whole room. Oh, I love that. But like it, you know, it kind of blows up, right? And so um, that that might, you know, there might have been, you know, a couple of incidents of lightning setting bitumen on fire, and so they had a reference point for cities blowing up. Yeah, okay. Okay. There you go. All right. So, Hava. So, and they said, yo. <laughs> right? Yo. The rabbinic interpretation. Hava, right? Hava Nagila. Hava, yo. Right? So, Nivnelanu ir, umigdal. Let us build a city, umigdal, and a tower. Virosho vashamayim. And its head is in the heavens, in the sky. And let us make for ourselves a shame. shame. What's a shame? Name. A name. Pen nafut al Lest we be scattered all over the world. Like we were told. Like we were told to do. So for the rabbis, it's they were told, you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they all were, at this point, they are like, nah, uh <laughs> right? And not only that, Crazy. now we have number two. We have problem number two, according to the rabbis. They're building a tower, and its head is in the heavens. Why is that a problem for the rabbis? Because they want to see God. Right? They want to see God? Is that would that would God be really angry about that? Aha. Aha. They want to be up in the heavens where God is. Creation is all about creating boundaries, about separating. Didn't we talk about this last week? Right? About we are finite, blah blah blah. And and they are trying to usurp the divine realm and say we human beings belong there. Right? We still believe that. <laughs> okay, so now we're, we're starting to understand the lessons of the story, right? Okay, so that's problem number two. They're going to build a migdal, and its head is in the sky so that they are already... Li- not only are they not filling the earth, they're leaving the earth and, and looking to go to heaven, to the sky, where, of course, God lives according to ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Here's the third problem. What's the third problem? Because we want to make for ourselves a name. Yeah. Right? Trump Tower. So <laughs> there is hubris around building something humongatoid just so our name goes on it. <laughs> right? So <laughs> just saying. So so that seems to be something that God is not pleased with. That humanity's building project, their talent, their creativity, their resources, their time, everything is being devoted to making for themselves a name. Would this be a good time to talk about names in synagogues? No. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Um, Number four problem, right, is that they say out loud, lest we be scattered, right? So... Confirming that they are, they are denying their responsibility to fill the earth. I'm not saying developing the whole planet is a good idea, but you have to remember back in these times, right? The more people you were, the more chance you had for survival. So at that time, it, they were 
They were going against what was best for survival, right? Everyone knew that, right? You know, so we still think that too. I mean, we concentrate on our numbers. How are we doing with our numbers in the world? Okay. So, were you going to say something? Else? Um. So when they make a name for themselves. Who's going to say it? I mean, hey, let's make a name for ourselves, even though there's nobody else who will we'll be a big name within our own community, I guess, right? Fair you know, it's, it doesn't Maybe seem to be about what other people. It seems to be about their, their, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, towers, towers are, um, are familiar to us from Mesopotamia. They're familiar to us from all of the religions in the neighborhood. They would build what was called a ziggurat. You've heard me talk about that before. I've passed around pictures before of a ziggurat. And so it was a very high, you know, it, it kind of came up like this. And um, you had steps going up. And then you went in, so you could go into the temple, or you could go up. That was the design of their temple. It was to represent the mountain where the deity came down on the mountain and humanity goes up to meet the deity. Do we have this anywhere in our sacred mythology? Oh, yeah. So, so we know from this, right? We have that mythology too, that you, you go, of course, if you're going to meet the divine, you go up and the divine comes down. So that is the, so possibly the design here is that they're going to build a temple so hot, a ziggurat so big that they not only meet God, they invade. Right? Space. They invade God's space. If they're commanded to scatter through the earth, what's the rationale for the state of Israel where all Jews should Right. Right. They're no Jews yet. The Jews and that's not biblical (laughs) that all the Jews in the whole world should gather in Israel. That only has any relevance after the exile. (laughs) Right. Right? It only post exilic you know, reality has anything about the Jews should gather back in Israel. Right? So, uh, is, is, this, is this a story about vanity? You think? Does <laughs> yeah. God just say you get the Trump Tower on this? You know, not just the same. He's moving it. He's actually Big, destroying it. Majorly yeah. saying. Yes. All right. So, um, right. So, so. Part of the question becomes, so what, what is the real issue and what's, what's the actual problem? And then what is God's solution, right? So God's solution is, Vayomer Adonai, right? Hain Amechad, they are one people and one language, Lechulam, for all of them, right? And what they propose to do, <laughs> right, is, is not good, Right? Seven, verse seven. Hava. Let us go down and take care of this. <laughs> right? Um, so let us go down. Yep. And let us confuse their 
lang- their speech, their language, svatam, literally their lips, which is their language. Asher lo ish that one person will not hear the language of their neighbor. Right? They won't get it. Right? Um, they won't. They won't understand. Essentially. Um, so the answer seems to be to not have people speaking the same language. There needs to be different languages, or else. Humanity tends to want to come together if we're all speaking the same language and all the same culture and all the same people, then what happens is we wind up wanting to storm heaven. But that, that is kind of our tendency. And for me, you know, this is a definitely a teaching about pick something, Nazi Germany. I mean, the dangers of everyone thinking the same way. Yep. Everyone having the same experience, the same vision, the same whatever, the same words, the same language, if it's all the same, you risk terrible use of human ingenuity, right? Those gas chambers were something in terms of technology. It was an innovation in efficiency. Human ingenuity will be used for bad things if everybody is in lockstep. We have to have diversity in order for humanity to have a check on its own impulses to, if you will, storm heaven. Isn't it interesting that the teachings of uh, the Garden of Eden, where it was perfect as long as you followed these rules, went into, we cannot avoid diversity, nor should we avoid diversity. So that's quite a big curve of learning not only in Jewish tradition, but in all of these stories to me, looking at it from an anthropological standpoint, don't show separation of people, it shows unification of people in that everybody has the same stories and yet the diversity is what makes it work. Yes, diversity is critical, says Torah, Mm -hmm. to save humanity from itself Mm -hmm. and what they'll get up to. This was also true. In other words, at the sure, time of this course, was written, of course. people were speaking many different oh, of languages. Course. And part of, part of this but, story But their story could have been, that's a terrible thing. And we right. need to come back together right. and right. all speak one language and have an imperial religion and say, Ooh. everyone should believe like we believe or you're going to hell. Really? <laughs> right? Say that? Just saying. Um, <laughs> so, that, so yes, they're writing about the world that is. That's why, and we're always pointing that out. Like, why did they put diversity? You know, because... The world is diverse, and there are different languages. They have to explain that. They say it's tough. The, the, but, the, but they, it, but, good. but for yeah. me, the point of the story is, and that's a good thing, because yeah. if we didn't have that, we would get up to mischief. We do well enough without that. We we have, we have enough mischief without that. So God scatters them over the face of the whole earth, <laughs> and they stopped building the city. <laughs> that is why it is called Bavel. Um, because that is where God confused the speech. And from there, God scatters him over the face of the earth. In Hebrew, to confuse. Libalbel is to confuse. So if somebody babbles, yes. 
What does babbling mean? If people babble, what is that? What is it, what is it saying? Nothing. If someone's babbling, it means I can't understand what they're saying. That's where it comes from. It comes from here to babble. Rabbi, can I ask about the status of Hebrew then? Yeah. Pre-Babelic Hebrew mm-hmm. and post. Babelic Hebrew. Does Hebrew suffer the same decline and fall as the other languages? And if so, is there some way of recapturing the early Hebrew, which is pure and unalloyed? There, so, I don't think that there is a Hebrew that's unclear. It seems that they were speaking a language, and then God confounds them or their speech or whatever so that now there are 70 languages. They were speaking Hebrew. We don't know what they were speaking. This is written in Hebrew. But we don't know what they were speaking. And I don't know what the early Israelites thought they were speaking. They were speaking Aramaic. Much, much later. Akkadian and Sumerian are the parent languages of Hebrew. So the early Israelites, if they're looking to prehistory, would have been thinking Sumerian. Akkadian. They write what Adam and Eve say together in Hebrew. What they think Adam and Eve are saying in what language, I don't know. They know there are languages older than theirs. He said, don't eat that apple. (laughs) Right? So it's written in Hebrew. What they think Adam and Eve were were speaking to one another, I don't know. Um, I don't know that they cared. Right, but but the, for the rabbis, it had to be Hebrew because God creates the world in Hebrew, and God creates the world through Hebrew, and looks through Torah as the blueprint and creates the world, and that has to be in Hebrew because it is the Svatakodesh, right? It's the it's the holy tongue, it's the holy language, right? Can, can someone please check what temperature it is in here, please? It could just be me. I'm farsighted, so don't Bad think you can pull it over on me. It's 75 degrees in here. Or German, or French. It, the book can be written in English, but they can be French people who were ostensibly speaking French. Got, is this fascination with a, a series of flawed languages? These are the implication of Babel is that all the tongues became confused. Different, no? Different, so that they, so flawed. I'm confused by your language. There's nothing wrong with your language. Even though I, I, I'm confused because I don't speak it. I don't understand it. Right? The there's nothing wrong with the languages. It doesn't seem in any way to be pejorative about language. It's what God wants for people to speak different languages. There isn't a pure one, and you know. And these are now somehow less than. Um, it, they are supposed to be not uh, doing and speaking the same thing. All right. <laughs> so I managed to, well, Eleanor managed uh, to make sure that you have my highlights. So the, the, the rabbis ask the question, what is, what is the sin, right? This is often the question the rabbis ask. What was the problem? And it's very clear with what the rabbis call Dor Hamabul, the generation of the flood. It's very clear what the problem is. It's not clear in what's called Dor Haflaga, the generation of scattering, of separation. 
it's not clear what it is. So in med, there are many, many midrashim written about what is the problem with Dor Haflaga? What are they being punished for? So I've already given you, I've ruined it for you, I've given you four uh, explanations. But go to page two, go to my highlight on page two. Talking about midrashim, they're trying to get at what's, what is the problem. The powerful images of these midrashim have inspired centuries of drush, of explanation. I remember once hearing Rav Soloveitchik Zichonam Levracha explain the difference between the generation of the flood and that of the dispersion by saying that the first was modern America. Moral corruption, pursuit of money and pleasure, while the second was communist Russia. The identification has probably lost much of its meaning in the last 15 years. Well, not anymore. Um, But anyone who has seen a Russian propaganda film with one million volunteer workers joyfully building the world's greatest dam with their bare hands will understand what the Rav meant. The idea of communal man triumphant, knowing no bounds, banishing God and building his own secure future on the power of human construction based on a faith in technology and engineering engineering does seem to be the underlying picture of the Madrashic interpretation of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel. Right, so I think that is a beautifully way, beautiful way to state for us kind of what's the problem, right, that human beings think, right, they can build their own secure future out of the power of human construction based on faith in technology and engineering. Right, that, that there is a Another, you know, another way to look at it, there is an existential nervousness and anxiety to human beings that we talked about last week that we are limited. We are finite. We are not here very long. We're not even that strong, right? But look at the bulldozer and what I made with, right, the bulldozer can do, right? So we, we, we have a, a, a weakness and insecurity and anxiety and what do we do? We compensate for it by using technology to build a big strong right? so and our name will last forever right so and this is exactly exactly what we do right everywhere both out there in the world and in here if i feel criticized if i feel vulnerable if i don't feel like i'm enough i start right puffing my, right you know we we do it's just as bad all the way around, what we do when we feel that anxiety and feel like we don't matter and we're not good enough and we're nothing. All right, so that seems to be a little bit of what Rob Soloveitchik was suggesting. Go to the next page. Go to my highlight. The ultimate plans, unimportant in themselves, required unity. And they knew that if people spread out, they would develop independent ideas which would detract from the fulfillment of the grand project. Furthermore, in order to maintain this unity, they would need police and strict totalitarian social control, which is how one commentator, the Netziv, explains, let us make a name for ourselves. The name means people in charge, supervisors. The outcome would be oppression, as exemplified by the story of Abraham and the furnace of Orkastim, which is another story. Um, the Netziv explains that the sentence about making bricks rather than using stone is a hint to this midrash. They needed a great furnace to produce the bricks. 
The project leads to the need for social unity, which leads to social repression. To prevent this, God disperses them. So now, another element, another aspect of the issue is if everyone is doing the same thing and everyone is speaking the same language and everybody's part of this great and you need everybody to participate in building this thing then some people who might be like uh tower (laughs) can't we write music (laughs) right what are you going to do with that person you kill them you oppress them you chain them up you drag them up to the top of the tower and say work you right it leads to oppression. If, if there's just one, only one common project, then there's no room for creativity. There's no room for any other ideas and there's no room for dissent. And that is sinful behavior, according to our teachers who right, believe that we, we should be able to pursue what we want to do and not have it imposed upon us in terms of our creativity, what we want to use technology for, what, what we want to build, if you will. Do Christians who believe in the Old Testament study it in the same way that we do? It depends which flavor of Christian. Um, and in general, they don't spend as much time unpacking Torah as they do the New Testament. By far, by far. These stories, and actually Jews are guilty of this too, these stories are taught to little kids. They're they're Bible stories, but they're not really... How many of us in this room have unpacked this story? Ever, right? I mean, I have, obviously, but but that's cheating, right? um, But because we... Unless you're studying Torah, why would you ever go, oh, let me look up the Tower of Babel and what that's really about? You would never do that unless I made you sit here and open the book to that page um, because they don't study Torah. And, and, and I think they have a different relationship on some level, some kinds of Christianity to the text, just like Orthodox Jews, right, who take it literally. So that's one difference is a lot of Christians take the text literally, um, as do a lot of, I'm not saying it's exclusively a Christian thing, Jews do it too, Um, but even Orthodox Jews try to really dig like this for what what is it really referring to, what's it really about, um, because these are our, our, these are our only texts in that sense as primary texts, yeah. The um, fact that it's called the Old Testament and not the Bible is a pejorative way yeah. of saying one's better than the other. The new is always better than the old. Um, so, uh, but but I have, you know, my best friend in Duluth was a, a Unitarian, uh, not Unitarian, a UCC, United Church of Christ um, pastor, and she and I, she would love it when I would unpack these stories and she immediately went and taught it to her people right like she 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 loved this and would have loved right to, for this to be the way all of these texts were studied by her community right how did they like it they they loved it she, she used to bring me in to teach at her church and they loved it because they don't get this right they don't they don't get to study torah they you know there was an old testament reading every sunday but it, that, that's not what they studied and they loved it they loved it. It's more about Christ than it's all about. It's so, what New Testament, you know, texts. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, go to the next page. 
I love that you do these. The yes. one last week was wonderful. Good, I good. It. I know we didn't get to it in class, but I, I am glad you read it because I thought it was I thought it was amazing. Uh, Rabbi um, Sachs is incredible. Um, so the people of Babel are making an attempt to create a unified, cohesive society. The tower is, as the Nativ claims, a unifying symbol, a center of gravity, as it were, for all mankind who rally around it. Nothing more, though nothing less either, was the surface intent of the people. But the Midrashim are clarifying for, clarifying for us the consequences of the unitary state, the psychological need for unity, the social pressure involved, the strength and power that result from this unity all will result in the monolithically totalitarian state which will result in both civil oppression and spiritual hubris that those two go together right so civil repression and spiritual hubris are what result whenever you have a totalitarian um, situation right all right. Um, and so we get the things you know, listed here, cultural unity, that one language, social cohesiveness, that they're all living together in one place, industrial advance, right? They now have a kiln, right, to make bricks in. What does one do with one's newfound power? Monumental construction <laughs> leading to centralization, pride, rebellion, and totalitarianism. All right. So drop down to that next highlight. Technological man, right? Mm-hmm. The expulsion of God, ideological dictatorship, social repression, organized idolatry ascribed by the Midrash to Nimrod, king of Babel, is a means of ideological control, giving everyone a central figure of authority easily manipulated by the ruling class. Go to the next one. But I think that the Torah is saying that this is inevitable if everyone must be included in the unitary society. The basis of total unitary society for all mankind will of necessity tend towards physical symbols, a tower, or an idol, and will of necessity be intolerant and compulsive. I take that in for a second. And I have to tell you that this felt like salve in a way um, for our situation right now. So as hard as it feels and as scary as it is for a lot of us and anxiety producing, it did kind of remind remind me that it's not catastrophic yet. (laughs) The totalitarian state is catastrophic to human freedom, to creativity, to you know, all, all those things that we value, to freedom. Um, and so I, I kind of felt like this teaching came at a good time for me. Like how, you know, I, as soon as the radio, I, I turn on NPR, as soon as I get in the car, um, and election, 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 and we're gonna talk to people about election, election, election. And then it starts with the whole, and I'm like, oh my God, turn it off. I cannot deal with it. But like in reading this, it's kind of like, okay, then what's the alternative, Amy? Right now, there's a hotly contested election. Okay, yes, people are feeling strongly on either side. Yes, we're not really doing well about how we're talking to each other. Yes, yes, and yes. But, but, the, but the opposite of that, in, in my estimation and in Torah's estimation, is worse. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. The, the goal is a unified mass dedicated to building central institutions which will perpetuate the unity. 
a logical eventual form of such a society may well be the Stalinist state, says our commentator. God's solution to this tendency in human beings, right, of all, is first of all forced cultural diversity, different languages, and secondly, physical dispersion. My next highlight, total unification of humanity is not desirable if humanity is to develop because diversity and pluralism are necessary components of freedom and human development requires freedom. My next highlight, this explains why this story is here in this location in the Torah. We are perched on the verge of the creation of the Jewish people. So not only in general is is individual you know, expression and freedom and all those things, um, necessary components of our development. But without it, you can't have the rise of a particular people with a particular language and a particular culture that we are attached to, right? It's, it's our culture. Without lots of different cultures and lots of different stuff going on, there would not have emerged Hebrew. There would not have emerged Israelite culture, Israelite religion, Israelite tradition, Israelite texts. So as a tiny little people, (laughs) we are very serious about Diversity. Diversity and needing to and wanting to and understanding the value of lots of different so human cultures and language story, and religions. If, if you have three Jews, you have four people. There you go. Also, <laughs> Yiddish and Ladino. Yiddish, yes. Ladino, absolutely. Yadadai. The other Jewish language. What is that? Come on, people! The third sacred language in Right. So, so exactly. Like we we have several languages because of our own now post-exilic Jewish diversity. We have Ladino. We bit my tongue. We have Ladino. We have. Modern Hebrew, which is very, very different from biblical Hebrew, right? We have Yiddish. We have Yadadai. Like, we have all those things because we too, as a people, are now diverse. And the question is in these articles I'm reading about the American relationship to Israel, um, the question is will Jewish diversity serve the needs of the Jewish people as a whole? Or is Jewish diversity finally pulling us in very different directions with very different goals? And that is a very scary question for some of us. Other people are not disturbed by that. My daughter could not care less, <laughs> right? Like, whatever, they're Israelis, they'll do what they want. You know, like, but, but for some of us who are still interested in a form of Jewish unity, a unity of the Jewish people with all of our diversity. For some of us, it is it is absolutely anxiety producing that we might be looking at a divergence that is so large culturally, religiously, linguistically, that we no longer truly identify as one people. Um, and that is, so that's, that's the extreme that we have to be aware of. In history, we can find other examples of that too. Of what? I mean, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, when they, the divisions were so enormous between them. Well, but w- one by history got read out of the picture. Anyway. 
the Sadducees became irrelevant because it was related kind of to the priesthood's way of understanding things. They got obliterated by history. Hopefully that won't happen to us, right? But so historically, yes, only one kind of major mainstream Judaism survived. Now we have not only a variety of practice and streams, as they're called. Uh, What's the real word for them? Denominations. Denominations. We have lots of denominations. Like what one of these articles was saying, do we really need five progressive seminaries? Do we need five different denominations of liberal American Judaism? Is that serving the Jewish people? Or is it further splintering us so that the liberal Jewish community can't can't even get its act together, right, to, to build things together that could be exciting and dynamic and the best use of our whatever as we're facing assimilation and disaffiliation and very, very thin Jewish identities in our young people. Like, what, you know, couldn't, if we all work together, wouldn't we have a better chance at developing things that will help people develop a thick Jewish identity? So these are the kinds of questions that are exactly related to this story, I think, right, in, in our time. Um, there is a real spiritual basis for the need for cultural pluralism, including different and somewhat mutually incomprehensible languages. I'll let you go home and think about that. My next highlight is cross-cultural dissonance. This is what I was talking about earlier. Cross-cultural dissonance is the price that must be paid for spiritual, or if you want to say, democratic development. Only through lonely separation can true spiritual greatness be achieved. Hence, we're going to get next week. Lech Lecha. For Avraham to develop, Avraham has to go. Go. He has to leave. Having broken up the totalitarian unitary state, the Torah is ready to embark on the adventure of Avraham Ha'ivri, the man from across the river, the river, a stranger in a strange land. So a lovely setup uh, to next week. So the individuality, creativity, and, and something new coming on the scene can only happen when there's diversity. Loneliness is the price we pay for any kind of creativity, and any artist in this room knows that. Creating is a lonely job sometimes. And there, there is a way that... Hmm? <laughs> there's a, because that that is the price, right? That as long as there's as long as you're involved in everything else, you can't you you're, you're not you're not alone with the creative process, right? And so um, and so that is what's gonna this very diversity and creativity and individuality is what's going to bring us to the arrival on the scene of Avraham, who has to lech, who has to go, who has to leave, so that a unique and new understanding of the divine can emerge into the world called the Jewish people. Stay tuned. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.